Welcome to the Bitcoin Butler's Podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And each week, we try and bring you an intellectually honest discussion about news and events affecting Bitcoin. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and share. So, Matt, I think it's been a couple of months, maybe November, since we did our last show. It's been too long. It has been too long, and... But to be honest, there hasn't been a ton of news or events really happening in Bitcoin. And and something that we discussed briefly before uh, we started this was just that when Bitcoin is a type of asset that you don't have to worry about on a day-to-day, month-to-month, kind of year-to-year basis, that when you invest in something like a stock or when i was was i was investing in stocks i would have to keep up with what the companies were doing you would have to keep up with the news about their products you would have to think about how that product lineup uh did with the the competition that was out there this is before their financials are out then when earnings season is out or you know you're going to have four earnings reports per year mm-hmm. you've got financials you have to go through you have uh, you have to read their outlook, depending on how much uh, that stock you have. You may want to get on the conference call or not. But the point was that it, it was like a job keeping up with um, you know, the big thing I followed, as we've talked about before, is Apple. And I knew everything about Apple. Just, you know, there was, there was very little information that got out there that um, I didn't consume. But every time earnings came out, it was like a terrifying day. I'm like, oh no, it's earnings day, and I don't know what's going to happen. And you know, th- there were there were times where a lot of times Apple would report, and they would have what I thought was great news, and the stock tanks, you know, like seven percent after hours. Right. But with Bitcoin, it's a little bit different because it it, it doesn't. It's not affected really by these. Uh, I'm going to call them microeconomic factors. It, well, it it's microeconomic be- factors, but it's also in the case of companies that are run by management teams and that have public investors, there's this idea that there's kind of a tail wagging the dog situation going on there where so much of what these companies are doing are focused on how Wall Street perceives it. And so there's a lot more kind of hype around all of the the information with bitcoin the news obviously news can affect the price of it but it's not like there's a company running underneath it that's affecting all of these things it's just kind of doing its own thing and um you know putting down blocks every 10 minutes and acting as a store of value for a lot of people and there's not uh for, there's nothing coming out of the actual entity um where there would be with with the stock Right, I think that's a great point. I, do they call that uh, management risk? Is that what it's called? Where you you have to be concerned that the management of the company is going to mess up the company. Yes, thank you. And so Bitcoin doesn't really have any management risk per se. You don't when you're when you're buying Bitcoin, you're not buying, uh, you know, Apple, Google, etc. You're you're really buying a commodity. Right, you're buying a, a bearer asset. Right. Right. Um, 
yeah, the, 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 the actual underlying Bitcoin never changes. It's not like one Bitcoin represents something more than it ever would, which you would have with a company. Whereas a company grows, each share of stock represents more uh, earnings per share. Right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is no, obviously there's no cash flow associated with, with Bitcoin. It's just, it is the asset and one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I keep wanting to say it's sort of like a set it and forget it type of way of investing. But I can tell you that um, for me to go through, and of course we keep up with what's going on. I just I just didn't need to follow it really minute by minute. It, it, the, the type of news coming out was pretty insignificant, which is to be expected. What you know, For people to expect that uh, there's always going to be something very exciting on the horizon or big news on the horizon uh, is a little bit silly because that's just not the way things work. Especially yeah, in sure you know, big macroeconomic way. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, you know, I think part of it also is when you understand Bitcoin and you become interested in it, you naturally, you know, lowering your time preference is part of that. And so, um, you know, my thought is that, yeah, I want to know what's going on from a market standpoint, not as much as from a platform and innovation standpoint. That's what's really, you know, important to me is what's being built on Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. and so my view is generally, I'm not going to harp on the news that I hear, and I'm certainly not going to, you know, scroll through Bitcoin tw Twitter and have that affect mm. my view of things. Um, I just feel like, you know, my time horizon is long enough where, um, you know, come talk to me in five years and let's see where we are. Mm. Well, I'd like to bring that up. So We've talked about before how we like to go on hikes on Thursday afternoons, and we never know where that conversation is going to go. Sometimes we go deep down a Bitcoin rabbit hole, and sometimes we we don't have, mention Bitcoin. We don't mention. <laughs> I think the past few hikes we we haven't mentioned Bitcoin much. But I brought it up one or two hikes ago, and, and Bitcoin at the time was at like sixteen thousand five hundred, and it, it didn't feel super strong at that level, and. I don't want to say that I had a doubt as to what was going on. It was just I, the best way I could describe it was unpleasant. I don't I don't like seeing things that I've that that used to be worth. You know what does Bitcoin drop like? You know I don't know what the percentage is, but if I said it was uh, almost seventy thousand, six, six right. you know six x, I got lost like a six x from you know where it was like sixty nine thousand. Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm a I'm a human being. I, I like to win at things. I don't like to lose. I particularly do not like to lose money or value in anything. That's not the pursuit of an investor. Um, so I was just, uh, I, I, I didn't, I, like a lot of people are holding Bitcoin. I'm, it's not so crazy. I didn't like it. I don't like seeing it at 16,500. Sure. And I, I started to reassess personally what what have I done here? Did I make a mistake here? And um, I think we should all have humility and all be willing to go back to the beginning of, of any decision we make. So I, I want to make sure it's clear that this is not something where I started to to feel weak about my holdings. I just was trying to be intellectually honest with myself to say, okay, 
knowing what you know now, what was the correct move to make? What would you do? You know, how does the outlook, you know, look compared to what you thought it was going to look like? Because it's impossible to look back two, three years and say, oh, yeah, I, I got it all right. I expected things to be here. That's unrealistic. No one can sure. do that. But anyway, so through this exercise, I, I started to think through it. And I, I went back to all the things that I understand about it. And my thesis has not changed. It's, it's one of the only things that's really real in this world. And people don't understand. People, as smart as you think these people are, and by these people, you can put in there whatever you want, whatever fits your, your kind of narrative. Sure, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. Lots of geniuses and experts everywhere. But these people just don't understand basic supply and demand. Because I think it's almost just comes down to that. And then we can get into, obviously, networks and things like that because there's other things to, to, to pile on top of that. There are other reasons why um, – Bitcoin may be ushering in the future, but I'm saying just from the concept of supply and demand and and stock to flow ratios of gold, um, it's it's some fairly simple math. And and that transitions me, Matt, to I asked you when we were in the woods, like, what do you think? I asked you the same question. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just instead of repeating your answer, I um uh, I'll let you share your answer. Um, to be honest, I don't remember exactly what my answer was, but I'll, I'll, I'll guess what it was, um, was that if I were to go back and kind of reassess my movement of, of value into Bitcoin um, and look at it compared to all of the other alternatives that were available to me at the time or even now, um, I still think I would land at the same place that this is an incredible store of value. It is a, an actual scarce asset of which there are very few in this world. Um, and I really view it as a long-term play where I'm not going to focus on the price day to day. Um, I also think that there are many externalities that nobody, um, you know, had kind of baked into the price that that really all happened over the course of this year, most of which really have very little to do with Bitcoin. So when you look at, at a lot of the things that caused the Bitcoin price to drop last year, um, whether that's, you know, Luna and Terra, Celsius, um, you, you know, ultimately FTX, um, all of the three hours capital, all of those crashes um, that dragged Bitcoin down really weren't had nothing to do with Bitcoin. They had to do with other, other assets that, um, you know, tend to get lumped in with Bitcoin, but are not Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. exactly. And so, and so given that those things happened, um, you know, and, and I'm not trying to say coulda, woulda, shoulda, what would have happened, you know, it, what happened happened. But, but I think that, you know, if you want to know why some of the predictions, didn't come to fruition when you look at, you know, rational people saying what they thought Bitcoin was going to do. And, and by all measures, you know, these were, and I'm not, I'm not saying calling a specific price is, is something that ever anyone's ever going to get right. But I think that without a lot of these outside events, 
um, you know, the, the bloodbath would, would not have been nearly as bad. Um, and I would say that relative to what actually happened when you look at FTX and everything that happened prior to that, Bitcoin has done amazingly well. It's really, you know, and I'm not even talking about the, the you know, this last run up over the past mm. month. I'm just saying mm. in general, mm. you know, there were plenty of people saying it's going to 5,000. And, you know, I think it, it kind of held the line really in a respectable way, given everything going on around it. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I you know, we was that my about, answer at the time, by the way? No, your answer was more short and sweet at the time. Your answer was, yeah, I, I thought it about it. Nothing's really changed. I'm fine. Like <laughs> I, I, I like, this is just not uh, like, I, I just don't, you really just didn't care. Yeah. You know, you didn't care about the price. You, 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 it was like, yeah, one or two sentences of reassurance. And I and and it's not one of those things where you know, where we're having these deep conversations in the woods. There we're we're pretty dialed into each other during that conversation. Meaning I would know if you were just saying it to make me feel better or <laughs> if you were saying it just to lie to yourself, right? Sure. Like when you said it, it was um that's why it was so impactful is because it was it was it was short and concise and clear and positive yeah that's right? uh how... you, you you weren't you weren't you didn't have anxiety or fear there was no anxiety or fear on your being at the time yeah right and you and and um and there are two other things i'd like to mention about this because it's all part of my uh uh, I guess we'll call it my personal journey, but I think that a lot of people probably when Bitcoin was at sixteen, fifteen thousand, whatever exactly went to, that they um, they had some heartache from it. I mean, we're, we're, there's, there's no shame in that, um, and maybe other people question. I'm sure a lot of people question: should they be holding on to this? Right? Sure. And although I'm sure a lot of people didn't hold on to it. Yeah. Although we see a lot of people, like the the people who really got it are holding on and I don't think people understand that either. Sure. So I had two other things that um that happened. One made me feel better, and one um was just an honest answer that I gave out. So uh I was having a discussion with my wife about this, and uh she wasn't concerned. She said it's like other things you've done. You get there before everybody else. And uh, that's not to try and be, uh, that doesn't sound boastful, but she was saying, you're, you know, I was really into the UFC mm -hmm. back, back in, you know, people didn't really, where I was known as the guy that was into the UFC. Right. But I thought this, this was just an amazing sport. I was really kind of fascinated with it. And I, I saw the, the difficulty and the beauty in it. And now it's, it's it's like on TV every weekend. Like like I I'm I'm not I, I barely even watch it anymore. Sure. Um, and uh, and that that was also uh, that's been my belief on Bitcoin. We've discussed it how early we are, and and people at at the the Bitcoin conferences talking about how early we are. It may not seem like you're that early, but it's really early. It's really early. Most people cannot. Most people in the in the, I will call them normies, cannot really give you any, they don't have any kind of clue what Bitcoin really is. Right. Right. And uh, the third thing that happened to me was that I was, uh, 
I was playing poker with my friends. And I think that sometimes there are people that like to, people know that I'm into Bitcoin. I don't talk about Bitcoin at the table, but everyone knows that I'm into Bitcoin. Sure. And um, I've heard people at the game say like, oh, I'm really glad I didn't buy Bitcoin at X, right? I'm really glad I didn't buy Bitcoin, you know. And and I just, I don't, it's, it's fine. I mean, I'm just, that's just not a discussion I need to be part of. But somebody asked me a few weeks ago, like, do you still, are you still a believer? And my answer was, yeah, like it's, nothing's changed. The only thing that changed was, it was a, a, a temporary price adjustment. It's, it's kind of one of the more insignificant things. I mean, the hash rate is at, at about an all time high. Right. And, um, and we also know how it's marching on and some of the other um, things that are going on with it. So um, do you have anything to add to this kind of weird segment? <laughs> um, no, I, I think, you know, I, I'm kind of in the same boat that, you know, I have, since I got into this, I have bought Bitcoin every single week without skipping a week. And sometimes more often than that. And so I think that's pretty much my testament to it is that, and I'm not saying that, you know, we're not talking huge amounts. I just buy some every no, week. I get it. No, but and, it's still, uh, it's still an action. Yeah, it happens. I get, I, I get my notification each week that you stacked and, mm. you know, and so I have more Bitcoin now than I did a week ago or two weeks ago. And, you know, that's going to continue. And as long as I'm doing that, you know, I feel like, um, I'm, I'm adjusting for some of these price fluctuations, but I'm really more than anything, um, proving that conviction that this is something that I want to acquire as much of as I can. And I'm not really going to stop based on what the price is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and then just one last thing to add to that, that I think Bitcoiners in general like to be, uh, like to be thought of as having a low time preference. Uh, obviously, it's in the book by by Seyfedean, and that concept I think re you know I think a lot of Bitcoiners would think it resonates with them. But in reality, um, it, it was really more about being upset about it was really more about a short time preference activity or or, mm -hmm. or a short time preference matter, and. Um, and that that's something that I, I think that people have uh, a more difficult time understanding with an investment is that you may just have to sort of wait a bit that it, it may you're just you're just gonna have to take some time you're just gonna think about like uh, a Michael Jordan rookie basketball card <laughs> right um and let's, I mean, Michael Jordan obviously was, was a superstar when he was a rookie, but let's just say that you bought this Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan rookie card, and let's say it cost $200 at the time, whatever, which would be a lot for, for a baseball card like that. Basketball. I'm sorry, basketball. <laughs> and, um, and you say, okay, this is going to be worth a lot of money someday, right? Let's just say that you're, you're, you're a great predictor. You're, you're a great study of basketball. And you just know Michael Jordan's going to be a very, very special player in this league. He's going to be this legendary icon, whatever it is, right? You, you, you kind of see it. Maybe you have a dream, a vision, whatever. 
and you buy this card. You buy, pay $200 for this card, and Michael Jordan's rookie year was like, what, 1983, 84? Something like that, yeah. Something like that, right? So um, 19, let's just say it's 1983 for easy math. That was 40 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you bought that Michael Jordan rookie card, 1983. What year is it worth a lot of money? Is it worth a lot of money in 1993? Let's say know. in 1993, <laughs> it's worth $10,000, 10, yeah. right? Great investment. You went from two hundred to 10000 Okay. Um, but you, you, your vision for where this thing is going is not 10000 This is going to be a million-dollar base a uh, million dollar basketball card right right i think it's actually probably worth more but anyway uh, the point is is that your the the value isn't realized in years one through 20 and i'm going to use for the sake of bitcoin i'm going to because i don't think it's on that that horizon although i think that not enough attention is paid to 20 years out 30 years out 40 years out i think i think the, the furthest anyone seems to be going with this right now is a prediction of about 10 years out. And that would give it a stock-to-flow ratio of four times that of goals, mm-hmm. right, by 2030. And that's where things start to get weird. I don't know what that means. It's hard to understand where technology is going to be in that year, where people are going to be with CBDCs and some of those other things. But 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 the point is that you have to be on the – to really to me i'm i'm thinking 2030 like that is my and this, this is not investment advice it's just this is my sure. own personal none of thing. its investment advice right not nothing you said but but when i think of the time horizon for bitcoin i think 2030 i have some markers other markers along the way i think the next having is a marker sure and i think uh that next run will be interesting and then i think that the next having is that big marker right that second having away and and sort of what do we get a year after that right um and that's that's a long time in the world of technology we're talking about 7 years but that is that's sort of where my time horizon is with this it's very difficult for me to go out further from that it's, yeah it's but but you're com- but when you compare that to you know to traders who have the highest of time preferences and want to, you know, try to take profits on a daily basis. Um, it's just a completely different worldview, right? That's there, there, because it's not just that you have a lower time preference outlook on it. It's that, you know, a lot of people are thinking that they wish they, they're glad that they didn't buy it at, you know, 60,000. Um, but those same people are probably not, buying it at 16,000. So mm-hmm. I have a weird theory on that that people may like to hear. So when I I guess when I first really I guess thought I understood Bitcoin, right? Cuz I don't know if you ever truly fully understand it. But when I first really thought I had a good grasp on it and the price was just going up every day, just mm-hmm. moving up up up. And uh I was thinking, you know, every person I know is going to be like fully invested in Bitcoin <laughs> because why wouldn't they be? And and they're all just they're all just going to jump on board. It's just going to be this it's going to be weird because everyone's going to be like 
so rich, right? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, this is just going to be really weird because everyone's just going to do this. This is like really obvious, you know, like I figured it out. I'm going to do it. And, um, and everyone else is going to figure it out. And why wouldn't they? Because as the price is running up, people are just going to buy in. That's just what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have that big crash, and that big crash, I think, is going to keep like eighty percent of the people out of it for at the least. next rounds, right? Yeah. Right? It's like it washes out a lot of the um, the individual investors and makes room for the institutions. And one of the things we talked about before in Bitcoin is that it's one of the few times that in, that individuals have, have front run the institutions. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it'll be a likely a smaller group of individuals outran the institutions, but the institutions outran the people, right? The institutions are going to outrun 80 They're going to outrun people. the masses. Yeah, for right, sure. Right. They're but, outrun, right. Yeah. And I, I mean, look, when, when we were first really getting deep into it and I had discussions with a lot of people, um, you know, to the point where I thought, I really thought that a handful of them were truly kind of orange pilled in the process. Um, most of them didn't buy Bitcoin. Um, because the time I was talking to them, you know, probably, we're probably talking about sometime between March and May of 2021. Um, and that was a big crash. Um, you know, and so as I'm talking to people and it's going from 20 to 30 to 50 to 60, and then as I'm continuing to talk to them, it's dropping back into the thirties. People are like, Whoa, this is just too scary. I'm, I'm out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there, I could, I could name several people that, you know, kind of fit into that category where if, if things had, had not dropped off at that point, then they might've bought in. Guaranteed. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I, I, you know, I, uh, Hard to say where it goes, but you either believe in something and you think that you've you've thought something through and you have some conviction in the type of asset you want to own, whether that's a, a mountain house or a ski cottage or uh, some land somewhere or a piece of art or a trading card, whatever you'd like to own. Um, if you've thought it through um, and you have conviction in it, it's... Uh, the 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 small fluctuations are not that meaningful right and uh you know it but it, like you said it's helpful to always ask yourself the question again just to make sure that you, that the you know the underlying principles behind your conviction are still intact yeah i think it's a great exercise it's it's mm-hmm. uh you know it's it can be difficult to not lie to yourself in these situations you really want to kind of wrestle with making sure that you don't just you know, you want to be pretty critical of, of what you did and didn't do. I mean, and I can tell you there, there are things I would like to have done differently. If I had known what the price was going to be, I would have delayed a significant number of purchases in sure. 2021. And I would have, I would have picked it up in, uh, in December of 2022. Right. And had, uh, you know, however, however much more. So, but, but when you were saying that about the, because we, similar friends, and I, I, I had similar conversations with people. People really want to get in as the price is moving up. And the, then as it started to crash, then just they, uh, they were in it to, to get rich. Yes. They were in it to make money. They weren't in it for like, what is this thing? Why do you, why do you have conviction in this thing? What, what is this, 
you know, why this? All it was was just another pony in the race. It didn't matter what it was, right? Yeah, it was, they, a, it was a widget at that point. It yeah, wasn't, yeah. and that's an interesting thing too, because I think if I were to go back to a lot of those conversations and probably the thing that I, that I think conveys my conviction in it the most was I would, you know, I would say to, to my friends, like, I feel like this is kind of like the ability to buy a piece of the internet in 1995. You know, we're at the mm -hmm. point before, you know, we may be right at the point where AOL was starting to send out uh, CD-ROMs to people, you know, to sign up. It's like, we're not there yet. It's, it is so early. And if that's what your conviction is based on, that's a very different, investment thesis than how many dollars does it cost me to buy it? Mm -hmm. Let, let's also not, I, I want to make sure something else is not lost in this discussion, which is that maybe a lot of this discussion has been about belief and conviction and opinion. And, and, and that has its own value, but also has its own weaknesses. I'd like to get to a couple of facts and, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these, but um, Bitcoin is the most powerful computer network in the world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's the most decentralized computer network in the world. Mm -hmm. It's the most secure computer network in the world. So I've heard, yeah. Okay. As far as I know. And, um, and it's had like, when was the last time Bitcoin was down? It has like the most uptime of oh, any network since, in the world. Since some early bugs, I mean, it's got, you know, the uptime is 99.99 something. It has higher uptime. It has a higher uptime than Apple, Google, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, mm -hmm. What the top fang stocks just has an uptime <laughs> yeah. of all of them combined. It's better than all of them combined. Meaning, if you add up all their downtime, right? All, yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and um, so it, there, there are some really tangible assets that are part of the Bitcoin network. So the Bitcoin software having that kind of uptime mm -hmm. is incredible it's like the, one of the most reliable if not the most reliable piece of software that we know of it's very simple what it does but it does it really 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 well right yeah sure and um and so there are a number of facts there are a number of really tangible things that uh that are also part of the bitcoin story all of the miners which is we're going to get into a story about that tonight because i mm -hmm. think there's been a, a really significant story in the world of mining um, but you've got this giant network of computers supporting it, and the Bitcoin protocol itself incentivizes them to do it. This isn't a guy – these the miners are not people in their basement that are right. buying some machines. Those guys have a tough time competing, and people can do that. And we know people that do that. But when you think of Bitcoin miners, these are usually uh, either publicly traded or – or sort of like, you know, large institutionally funded. Well, yeah, very well capitalized. Very yeah. well capitalized, right. Yeah. This is big, big institutional money. Because here's why. They say, okay, if we take $100 million, I'm just going to make up a number. We take $100 mm -hmm. million to capitalize this uh, Bitcoin mining farm. Um, it is going to produce for us a return of, and I'm just going to make the math easy, 
uh, in its lifespan, it's going to produce a capital return to us of, let's say, $125 million. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably more than that, but let's just say $125 million. Well, if, and let's say that's going to happen over a period of three years because we have to just make things kind of reasonable, right? Give the machines a three-year lifespan or so. Sure. And I think my math is being pretty conservative. But basically, if you tell this big institutional money that you can give me, you give me a hundred million, and I'm going to show you a, and I don't want to say bulletproof because nothing is bulletproof, but an almost bulletproof way. Oh, right. If you, if you look, and if you look at mining where it is right now, there are a lot of challenges as well. So obviously, you know, if you invested in a mining company a year and a half ago, you're not very happy with that investment, but there's also, again, many external factors, energy prices, uh, just, you know, all of that, all of the, the ability for miners to be profitable is, has, has come under some, some stress and you, you know, you've seen the, sure. the cost of the equipment drop, all of that. So, you know, I, I, to be honest, to be intellectually fair, it's, um, you know, mining is not a is by no means a slam dunk and oh, no. you know and we just saw core scientific go bankrupt i mean there's mm-hmm. there's real problems in the mining world when it comes to these large operations but to your point i think that you know you're talking about you're basically talking about raising money for capex that you know is going to create a return there's going to be you know a relatively short payback time and then you're literally printing money right and 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 to be clear, what I meant by some of that is that they don't have this like big managerial risk or like product execution risk or like market share type risk. They just know if they put, you know, they basically put a whole bunch of machines in in a cooled warehouse, right? Supply it with a, the cheapest electricity possible, and you know how many people how many people work at a typical like uh, like a, a large Bitcoin farm. Like, let's say a, a Bitcoin, what would a large operation have? Like 10,000 units? Maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's say 10,000 units, yeah. right? How many employees do you need to run 10,000 Bitcoin miners? I mean, less per square foot than, you know, right. I mean, most could, other operations. Could you run that operation with five engineers? Possibly. I mean, there's a way to find out. But yeah. the point is, is that you don't have to have, you don't have a very large labor cost when you're running these miners, right? You're buying machines and plugging them in the wall. Mm-hmm. That's the business. And and you, obviously there are risks to be factored in because the price does fluctuate. Energy costs can fluctuate. You know, there are things there. So, um, but I think uh, I think more often than not, they have made money on this, uh, this pursuit. Yeah, by the way, I did look at this. I think uh, Marathon, as of a little over a year ago, had like almost 200,000 ASICs. 200,000 computers. Is that 100, 199,000 is what, the, what it said. Is that in one spot? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. So, so I think if just to, to kind of wrap the – kind of put a summary on that, um, and then I'd like to see what else you have on it, is that – uh, the the first part of the conversation was sort of about belief in in what Bitcoin was, an understanding of what Bitcoin is, not just belief. It's understanding what what type of asset it is. But but judgment of an asset is subjective, and sure. we need to you know realize that. But it's just that um, 
So it is judgment of an asset. But then if you get to some of the facts, you realize that Bitcoin is really almost like a, a, I don't know, I'm just floating this theory here. Like uh, like we talk about the FANG stocks. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe Bitcoin is like a FANG stock. Well, I think it is actually. I think it's you very much sense. like a FANG stock. Um, so to me, most of the companies in the FANG group all had some way where you could not beat them, where they were just the, clearly the best at what they did. Mm -hmm. So Apple was the best at the phone. Google was the best at search and advertising. Facebook was the best at uh, social media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about a monetary network, if I were to ask you, what is the best monetary network in the world and why? What would your answer be? Bitcoin. Okay. So why? Well, because of all the reasons we were just talking about, it's decentralized. It works. Um, it's an incredibly powerful network. It's in, there's incentives built into it to keep it going um, and to secure it. So all of those things make it, uh, you know, fairly unbreakable. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 not even close to second place, mm -hmm. right? And then it'd be very difficult for someone like, uh, let's just say, an Apple, very powerful company, to come along and say, okay, we're going to have our token. And our financial network. Well, I don't care. Apple's financial network is never going to be as reliable, robust, and secure, and free, and and able to audit as Bitcoin. Right. And you're, you're also mm -hmm. not going to have decentralized players all over the world running computers to keep it alive. And if Apple at any time wants to come along and shut it down, they can. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm saying, if you if you say how important of a piece of technology is a monetary network, so like like SWIFT network, right? Mm -hmm. How important is that technology in the digital world? And of course, it's it's like one of the keys to civilization, right? Absolutely, to commerce. So. When you when you compare Google, I'm sorry, when you compare Bitcoin's dominance as a technology in the the tech world, I would put it in that category of those monopolistic companies. Sure, I understand where it, where it yeah. makes it almost impossible for someone else to compete, and so that in and of itself has some value. So if you think about it, um. Google has a market. I'm sorry. Uh, Bitcoin is a market cap of about 400 billionish right now. 440. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in that range. Well, if you thought about Bitcoin as being like this weird decentralized, like tech giant, and it has a value that is monetary network and balance sheet in some ways have a value of 400 and or so billion, 440 mm -hmm. billion, right? And that would sort of be, um, I think it's a fairly good valuation in some ways. If I was comparing it to a tech company, I would actually argue maybe I'm biased. I'll always say it's worth more, but 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 I'm saying that. Well, but but you also have to realize that you you say you're you're biased and that it, you think it's worth more, but the reality is that 
there are a lot of assets that can get sucked into Bitcoin um, over time. And I'm not just talking about digital assets, um, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think that, that and it's not going to be like, you know, it's not realistic to say, okay, Bitcoin is going to absorb, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars of, of value anytime in the, in the immediate future. That's just not realistic. But when you look at where value is stored, and if you look at, you know, modest departures from those stores of value into Bitcoin, it's, you know, the, the upside is absolutely there. And what you're talking about doesn't reflect any of that. That just reflects where, where it is right now with, without those assets, you know, having been transferred into Bitcoin. I mean, when you, you're going to see um, precious metals and other digital assets and real estate and bonds, all of those assets are going to some extent convert into Bitcoin over time as the demand for Bitcoin grows and, and it's, you know, use as a store of value is, is demonstrated. Mm-hmm. That's actually one of my valuation models on Bitcoin is what percent of each of these other asset classes are going to get come over. And if you just have one or 2% of each asset class come over, uh, I, I forgot what it was. I think Bitcoin's at least like 250,000 a coin, something like right, that. Yeah. Maybe more. I think it may have been higher. I'm not sure. But yeah, those types of things. I mean, the, the, when you look at small amounts of value, I mean, the, you know, even from like a corporate treasury standpoint, if, if, you know, there's that same model that says if, if just a few percent of the S and P's balance sheet, you know, cash reserves were to go into Bitcoin, what would that do? And it's, you know, it's a similar type of outcome. So there's all these, you know, things that we're not saying they're going to happen or, um, and there's not, you know, and it isn't happening at the moment, but when you think through rationally what Bitcoin is and where it's headed, you know, some of that I think is inevitable. Okay. Um, I have this other thought in the, everything is good for Bitcoin category. Um, and I don't know if, um, if we've talked about this before, but I think we did. And that is the impact of FTX and the, I'm going to call it the altcoin meltdown, because it wasn't just mm. FTX. Um, and I can't even list all the companies, three arrows, Celsius, FTX, the list just goes on. All the, all these uh, these uh, altcoin casinos, you know, shitcoin casinos. Um, they had a, they completely melted down at the end of 2022 to the point where one of the biggest in the world, FTX, who was doing, you know, Super Bowl commercials with Tom Brady and uh, Larry David. I mean, you're just talking about they couldn't be more apart. They they sort of were the face of crypto for the American culture in some ways. Right? Sure. They were the biggest brand. I don't necessarily know they had the mo- most users, but they were the most uh, uh, audacious with their marketing, mm-hmm. right? And they got huge celebrities. They got people invested. Um, they named know, an they, arena. Yeah, yeah they did all this kind of stuff, right? Crazy prices paid for everything. And the and the CEO was this like 30, 33-year-old, you know, kind of eccentric, uh, super genius. who just turned out to be basically a crook, allegedly. Yeah. And, and part of that means that 
a lot of people's understanding of crypto got realigned because people have been talking forever that the you know during the bitcoin conference in miami there's an altcoin conference and they call the altcoin conference the the shitcoin conference right so people knew that with 20,000 these things out there obviously the people that go to it call it that right right that's the actual name <laughs> of right, the conference right, right? Yeah. um and and so people always knew these people would just i mean like openly make fun of some of the silliness like okay this coin's got a 1000% interest a year right like that could ever be real like someone with any kind of intelligence or risk analysis would be fooled by that. I'm, and I'm not saying that people are saying, look, I know this is kind of BS, but, you know, these are my odds. This is my risk and reward this is my outcome. You know, there, there are ways to play that. But but to have conviction of it is something different. And everyone knew this crash was coming and everyone said, all these things are going to go to zero. And that starts to happen and people act surprised. Right. But But here's my kind of thinking on it is that there's going to be a push now to like crack down on crypto as there should be. Um, I guess in some ways, I don't want to get into like, do I really think the government should do it? But, but, but they're really going to do this. Right. And it's going to be an easy thing. And they're going to, you know, it's, they're going to probably mark them all as securities, which. Right. Which, which I, I think that's maybe a better way of putting it. Is that you can be, you can be generally against regulation or over-regulation, but you also have to live in the real world. And it's, it's really difficult to take a position that, you know, stocks and other financial securities should be governed by the SEC, but all of these tokens should not, you know, exactly. all of these crypto tokens. And so you can't, so while I would be, you know, I could have an I could have an argument against pretty much any government regulation. Um, the reality is that some of it is is good for consumers who don't know better, and some of it is is to prevent really bad things from happening um, to the financial system. Um, but you know what I, what I'm not okay with is saying, well, this should be regulated for this reason, and this thing over here that looks and acts the same way should not, um, mm -hmm. because we can't because you know the government's too lazy or incompetent to figure out what to do with it. So I think that's where we need to get with that for, for sure. So that the, there is a, that playing field is kind of leveled from the standpoint of these altcoins, but that also goes along with recognizing that Bitcoin is something different. Th that's my, that's my, um, that's my, th that's my thinking here. That's is the that, punchline. Right. That's the punchline. Right. They are going to, they're probably going to list the all of the altcoins as securities, which means it's basically going to shut them down. People will probably find some creative way to get around it, but but it basically is going to be like these things don't these things we're going to go after, and they're going to go after twenty thousand of them, right? And they can say they go to twenty thousand, but but what's going to come out of that process is the understanding that Bitcoin is different, and so it's like it's sort of this like. Uh, jiu-jitsu move where or magician move where you know people are looking at the 20,000 that are being cracked down on mm -hmm. and then the one 
separates itself from that um, and, and gets proven to be a, a more real asset. And another thing that happened with the FTX collapse, which I think was good for Bitcoin, bad for people, was that people left their Bitcoin on the exchange. Yeah. And we saw a lot of things talking about storage all of a sudden. And, and, and I think that, you know, that I think anytime there's a like a, sort of a tragedy that gets into the public consciousness mm-hmm. that that people look to the survivors or the way to have avoided that. So it's like sort of like, uh, um, you know, someone that, that has a house near a beach builds their house out of concrete. Right, and all the other houses uh, get get blown away by the hurricane. This one stands up. Then the next time they do those houses, most of the other houses will be concrete, sure. because that's just the way people think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I I think that's what um, what might be happening here with Bitcoin. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I also think, and that's being definitely reflected in the private equity markets. Um, you know, I think there was so much appetite to invest in all of these different token projects. And, you know, you could, you could go out and raise money on a PowerPoint deck that just said, you know, we're going to raise this money. We're going to pay this, we're going to pay you this yield. And, you know, and by the time anyone's worried about, about where the rest of the money's coming from, they've made their money back and then some. So, you know, that's what was going on. Um, and I think that this shook out a lot of those investors too, because now they're like, wait a second, we're not, we're not going to sign up for these, um, you know, token offerings that, that could easily, you know, just go sideways with no notice. Um, I I think that, you know, and and we talked about this, I think probably on our, on our last one or whenever we talked about FTX that, you know, you had serious, um, private equity money invested in FTX with, you know, seemingly very little due diligence or definitely not very good due diligence. Um, and so I think that you'll, you're going to see less money flowing into some of those altcoin assets and you're going to see, you know, more investment going into things being built on top of Bitcoin. Yeah. I, I think that's a great, great point. Um, that, the the VCs were making so much money off these altcoins because they were getting all these pre mines and things. It's like, hey, would you like to, right. you know, spend ten million or put ten million in this project, and you're going to have when we release our coins a hundred million worth of this fake just coin, whatever you want to call it, and we're going to have a market for it, and you're going to make a ton of money, and it's just basically like printing money. And I think they funded. Yeah. Just tons and tons and tons of these, right? Help them create a slick website, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the I think the the VCs did great uh, in the altcoin market. And now it looks like that run is. I don't follow very much, but it, but I could argue that run is going to come to an end. I think it's going to be hard to justify some of these things after you have this like in your face epic collapse. Of oh FTX. no, I know that's happening, and I know right. of, I know of projects that have been impacted by this because you know, they might've been counting on, on investments coming from, from folks who had an appetite to do this type of project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now all this happens. Plus a lot of these folks lost a fair amount of their investable capital because they were invested in, in a lot of these, you know, mm-hmm. questionable assets. 
Yeah, so I think that, hypothetically speaking, let's just say that the FTX collapse was essentially the collapse of the altcoin market. And I'm not saying it was. I'm just saying, for the sake of argument, one could argue it might be. I think time will tell. It was a collapse of the altcoin market. It may not be the collapse of it. Correct. It, it It was a very, very damaging blow. A very damaging blow, and, and enough of a blow that serious people can never take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And and you also had a lot of people lose a lot of money, and it was fraud, and it was just like this is just, you know, the characters involved were crazy. But um, the question is, everyone knew Bitcoin was going to take a shot when the the, the shitcoin market collapsed. So one of the questions you can ask yourself is if this was the collapse of, of that market, um, how did Bitcoin hold up to what – in relation to what you thought might happen or you feared might happen? And I don't have the answer to that. It's just more of a, a way of looking at it. Yeah. Because, well, I said earlier, I think, I think it's right. held up pretty well. I think it's yeah, held yeah, up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that that is uh, – you know the the F. I don't know if you could. Do you consider the FTX collapse a black swan event, or you know I I think that's also can be a subjective term. It it, it was a significant significant event that was not really. Be, it was not anticipated in terms of you know what the market was expecting. Um, so you know i so i don't i don't know you know exactly what the definition of a, what qualifies it to be a black swan event but i would say it is a large unexpected event with serious consequences okay so if we if we reverse out a little bit and say okay starting with the luna collapse mm-hmm. and then three arrows capital and celsius and who am i forgetting um Terra Luna, Three Arrows, FTX, Celsius, Voyager. Voyager, okay. But add all those collapses together and tell me how much of a collapse that is for the altcoin market. That's it's big. Big. I mean, it's it's almost like, um, I, I don't know. But to me, that's, I, I, I don't know how it plays out, but I, I could argue that's a fatal blow. Mm-hmm. It could have been, yes. Yeah, it could have been a fatal blow. So, um, and with that, like what you said, which is a really great point, um, was that well, now more effort will be paid. Okay, well, that that was a that was a chapter, right? Mm-hmm. And now the next chapter is Bitcoin and what you can build on top of Bitcoin, which is. Um, there's, there's some other applications being built on top of Bitcoin. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's funny because I think in the past, maybe just in the past week or two, I've seen, you know, there've been, there've been some, there've been some people, I think Brian Armstrong was one in particular, um, CEO of Coinbase that took the dot ETH off of his Twitter handle. Um, and is all of a sudden now, you know, more Bitcoin focused, um, I thought that was an interesting little mm-hmm. just tidbit of that. You know, I think there's some some people that are maybe trying to reorient themselves. Um, so in, so in you're that telling me, okay, so right. So let's just take the CEO of the largest U.S. exchange and one that, that is publicly traded and people may hate on Coinbase, um, 
But so far, they've been a good actor. You may not like some of the fees and this and that, but I think Coinbase has really been a good actor. They're, they're publicly traded. They're, they're, um, I think that's good for Bitcoin. I think it's very good for Bitcoin. And um, so the CEO of that company removing the Ether thing from mm -hmm. the social media, that's significant. People don't just adjust that willy-nilly. Right. It has, especially when you're a very highly visible person, he knows that that will be seen by the world and discussed. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. To what extent he wants that to be done, I don't know. I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's meaningful what's up there. Um, there's also this app. You've heard of this app. I'm sure you have Noster. Noster. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a decentralized Twitter kind of or social media. It, it's platform. more than that. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't used it. I don't, I don't really know. I, uh, I haven't played around with it. I, I, I went to it one time when I first heard about it, and the the user interface was just like, this is way too early for me. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not this kind of guy. Yeah. And then, um. I went to it today. I played around with it today. I got a, a private key from it today. And I, I I didn't really get too deep in anything. I just was just – I wasn't devoting a lot of time to it. I was just kind of poking around. And it, it looks like the idea that these are apps built on top of Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. they're apps running on Bitcoin. And the – I'm probably going to listen back to this and, and – um, regret how I'm describing this, but but it gets data from a different source than the app. So even when you have an app on your phone, the app is your interface, your, mm -hmm. your user interface, your UI. And then behind that is the data that, that is being pulled into your app. And so the way that uh, Noster works is similar that you have an app. Um, I don't think they're going to do apps. I think they want to do everything web-based to make mm -hmm. it more decentralized. But But anyway, it's still a web app. It's the same thing. And it gets um, this decentralized data from a relay. So, mm -hmm. like, the data is out there. This is the part I don't understand yet, is that the data is out there uh, independent of which app is using that data. And it can forward it to anything. They use the term relay, but I don't, that's not a very good description. I'd like to go a little deeper into that and understand it. But the point is that apps are being built on top of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to look into that and hopefully next time we, we can talk about it more. It's, in, it's very interesting. And that, that was kind of my understanding of it too, is that it is, it is fully decentralized or, you know, highly decentralized and that you did, and that I did understand that you don't have, everything sitting on your phone if you're using your phone it's just, it would be on a browser most likely but it's but whatever data is up there you pull it in from from points anywhere on the network mm -hmm. um, where it doesn't have to go through any central hub and you're using um, a private key to basically prove your identity on that platform mm -hmm. yeah it's i i think that if you I think if we dig a little deeper here, we're going to be pretty amazed by what's here. Um, I mean, you have the potential for creating a Twitter-like social media app that's completely decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. Let's assume that that's correct. So what does that mean? Like there's no moderators, there's nothing. It's just like completely wide open. I guess so. I mean, if there's... If I mean, there's... I'm sure there's some kind of filter, but but then again, everyone on the network is known. Right. That's it's not a good way to um, 
to be anonymous on uh i mean in some ways it's an, it's pseudonymous it's pseudonymous yeah right yeah but i'm saying like uh there there's some kind of well we'll see you know, the, the the everyone will always have a way i mean i i just went to a website and it gave me this private key and mm-hmm. it gave me a wallet and it gave me a public key and i uh i saved all that information and uh, to upload a picture, you had to go to like Imager or some other image website to put your your profile picture on there. And mm-hmm. I didn't. That, that's kind of where it stopped me. I didn't have a quick way of just popping that in there. So, uh, but but when we talk about apps that are built on Bitcoin, um, I think it's also important we mention here as we're kind of doing this. Uh, I guess this episode has really kind of turned into just you know state of Bitcoin. Where are we right now? And yeah. Um, and I, and I think it's been great. Uh, the the Lightning Network and the way that um, it's functioning and the way I'm seeing more people scanning to pay. Mm-hmm. So I guess let me rephrase that. Well, one, there, there are two different thoughts there. The, the first thought I have is that I'm going to more places now where it's scan to pay. So uh, I went to a train show of all places last mm-hmm. weekend, and they had these you know little vendors – uh, and the vendors, if you want to pay the vendor, they have a QR code. You scan the QR code. Now it's clunky. It, it dials you into like Cash App or Venmo. It's just mm-hmm. their quick way into those apps. But the the point is, and I also went to a baseball card show, and they had a similar thing from these like independent vendors, right? Um, the The idea is that if you go to a baseball card show and you see on the counter a QR code for, you know, pay, which is pay and a QR code. People understand what that is. Right. So function with that. Yeah. And my comment was going to be that I I think, you know, you could say that the resistance to adopt a lot of new technology has to do with like a lack of muscle memory, if you will, meaning that it's like, Mm -hmm. you don't know, you know, if someone were to, if you were to go somewhere, I don't know, say five years ago, and you were to go check out um, at a store or say you went to, you know, you took your kid to a, a model train show and you wanted to buy him a Thomas the Tank Engine. You know, you go and you say, OK, uh, how much do I owe you? And the guy handed you a QR code. You would have looked at him like, what is this? You know, right. and, yeah. and what do you what do you, what am I what am I doing here? And and so to go from that to now someone it's time to pay and someone hands you a QR code and you say, okay, well now I open up my phone and take a picture of that QR code. And it's going to, even if it launches Venmo, um, it's still a familiar process that, that it's not foreign to most people at this point. So I think the ability to do that and then, you know, the next natural evolution of something, you know, of, of lightning for payments like that mm. isn't going to, it's not going to be a static QR code. It's going to be that person's going to hold up their phone with a QR code and you're going to scan that and you're going to pay automatically pay the exact amount that you owe. And it's going to settle instantly over lightning. And that, mm. you know, I think, but the leap from, you know, having a QR code to be able to pay for something to paying with lightning is much shorter now than, you know, than it was not that long ago. Uh, agreed. And I think that, what what a lot of these vendors will find out is that accepting Lightning is easier than accepting Venmo, right? And because it's, it is, and for most of these, you know, sometimes they can get away with it not being a business account. But pretty much, if you're doing business on on Venmo or Cash App or mm-hmm. any of those, you're going to pay fees, um, or you're going to pay 
credit card fee. So if you can settle over lightning basically for free and instantly and final, um, you know, that, I think that's attractive to, to a lot of merchants, um, you know, because there is a huge economy around um, smaller transactions and, you know, going to, you said train shows or baseball card shows or, um, you know, whatever type of retail that may not be a big box retail. It could be a neighborhood retailer. It could be a local coffee shop, whatever. Um, all of those there, that is a, that is a significant transaction volume in our economy. And so mm-hmm. the ability to, to shift to that is, is really not that it's not that big of a leap. <clears throat> no, I, I also think you could possibly have like a, almost like a lightning wallet app, almost mm-hmm. like exactly like a Venmo. Right. They, yeah. But it's, but it's a hundred percent lightning. So it's like, if you want to, you know, if you have a balance in your lightning wallet, you can use your balance or it connects to your bank account instantly. And you could pay someone from your bank account to lightning to their Lightning. Yeah. I mean, strike is, does that to some extent. Agreed. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but my, my big point here is that people are already using barcodes mm-hmm. and if people can use barcodes, people can use lightning. The UI is the same. Yep. All right. Well, uh, do you want to talk about any of the, uh, any of the news? We can yeah, run sure. through it why quickly. Not? Yeah. Why not? Um, all right. Well, the first one is, um, El Salvador. This, uh, a widely underreported story. <laughs> Maybe the most telling thing about the story is how underreported it was. So I found one article in English, um, which had a, a kind of a funny headline to it. It says El Salvador says it has repaid eight hundred million dollar bond maturing January. Not El Salvador has repaid, but El Salvador says it has repaid. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you're a journalist. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know. And then the funny part, right? The funny part is that the opening of the article says El Salvador has repaid an eight hundred million dollar bond. Mm. So in the headline. I mean, if you're just if you're just a headline writer, the headline really should be El Salvador's repaid an eight hundred million dollar bond because that's how your article starts. Yeah, interesting. But they had to throw something in there just to make it. It couldn't couldn't be neutral. Couldn't just be factual. It had to have a uh, editorial slant to it. Right. And um, and we found an article that uh, Naib Bukele tweeted out that was in Spanish. We had it translated. That mm-hmm. was uh, he, he talked about the fact that it was only one newspaper. And I think that the question would be if, if El Salvador defaulted on this bond, how many articles would there be? Um, yeah, there would be a ton of articles and it would be – um, it would it would actually have a I think it would have a significant effect on on the Bitcoin market. Yeah, I I don't know uh, I haven't thought through the effect on the Bitcoin market, but it wouldn't be good, and it would be it, I, I would say that it would be a big like ha ha moment to the people that, that <laughs> dislike Bitcoin, like you know look what happened here. But yeah, but it, but site but but you know you don't need to have um, uh, the articles. For, for something to be a reality. And you can also glean a lot from the lack of coverage, meaning this is not something that uh, 
the people who control the narrative or whatever the narrative would be. I, I don't even know. Just I think people understand what I'm talking about. Like, you know, it says a lot that no one in the media is is. I mean, isn't this a good news story? It's a great news story. And and I think one of the thing that's that's really interesting is that, um, you know, this this bond was actually downgraded um, in September. Huh. And um, I um, and it was downgraded. I, I looked at I actually looked at what the gradings because I don't really know a whole lot about bond grading, but um, it was what they called a CC rating, which means that um, it's highly vulnerable to non-payment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and it got downgraded to CCC. Um, and let me make sure I got that right, that it went, but basically it got downgraded to the point to where they said, it. you know, there's a, um, it, yeah, it went down to CC. CC means that there's a current highly vulnerable, high vulnerability to non-payment, whereas triple C just means that there's a vulnerability, not a high vulnerability. So basically they said there's a really good chance this thing's not getting paid. That was as recently mm-hmm. as September. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what El Salvador did was they turned around and paid off the 800 million plus interest that was due um, on this bond. And now they've got no maturities on their bonds until uh, I believe 2025. So mm-hmm. they've got a couple more years to, to worry about it. So they, they still have some IMF bonds to pay off? They had, um, I think there was another 300 and something um, million. Let me see if I can find that. But yeah, I think I think I read an article that said they paid 800 plus interest and they still owe like 367 million plus interest in 2025. So half of, yeah, half of what they owe now plus interest, but, um, you know, they made, a, they made a big dent in it. That's yeah. for sure. And they and they made the payment on time, which was, you know, doubtful according to the bond raiders. Right. So it's certainly a big story, it, yeah. and, I, and maybe the story within the story is just you know the lack of uh, lack of press on it. Right. Well, or the fact that they took a good news story and made it either a non-story or in some ways, you know, you could view it as a negative story. Talk, you know, they're like, oh, well, this bond was really poorly rated. Oh, and by the way, it got paid off. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's um, it, it's definitely an interesting slant to it um, that I agree with you would have been much more amplified if if it had gone in the other direction. For sure. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. Uh, Bitcoin uh, mining going to be using nuclear power uh, this quarter in Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, so that was that was a. I thought that was a really uh, significant story in terms of talking about uh, about using you know renewable, efficient, cheap energy to uh, to power Bitcoin miners. Um, well, doesn't really get much much cheaper and efficient than than nuclear. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, I guess we could put in the. Uh, I don't think we were the first. We were definitely not the first ones to say this, but I think we we're very early talking about this concept of uh, all these power providers using Bitcoin to stabilize their network mm-hmm. and make themselves more profitable. Right? They can. There are a lot of advantages for power companies to have Bitcoin mining in house, and this is something that 
I think we said on one of the earlier shows that it would almost be negligent that if you were a power company or a power provider, that you weren't having Bitcoin mining there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think, was it last week or the week before? There, there was, you know, there was some bad winter weather in Texas and you had situations where Bitcoin miners powered down um, and it actually really, it actually worked. It helped to um, avoid, you know, having to have any rolling blackouts or, you know, exceeding peak demand on the on the power plants i mean it's it's pretty incredible yeah and, and i'd like to reiterate how that system works because just because i think a lot of people don't understand this and it's it's worth mentioning because it's it's really neat if you look at the the real world implications that happen in texas yeah so if you run let's say a nuclear uh, a 2.5 this this is a 2.5 gigawatt nuclear power station you can't just turn up and turn down the nuclear reactor like you would a thermostat or volume on your TV. It doesn't work like that. And so what the energy companies try and do is they try and guess how much power to generate at different times. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to guess too little because if they guess too little – then they're going to have blackouts and rolling blackouts, and it's terrible. It's like they don't like to err on the side of too little. And we should give uh, the energy providers a lot of credit in the United States because we don't really have that very often. Yeah. Right? And so they try to have sort of – they try and they, they definitely err on the side of having too much output because that's what you need as an energy company. If you keep having blackouts, people are going to go crazy and they're going to demand that that you turn up the dial anyway. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to plan your power generation right. based on the peak demand, not on your average demand. Right, but I'm saying that they have to – when they're if they're making an estimate, if they think they need you know, 2 gigawatts, it's probably best to go to 2.1 gigawatts just to be sure. Yeah. Right, add a little something on top, just just for some <laughs> margin of error. And so, what happens is that a lot of the because the power supply companies have to make sure that they can meet demand, a lot of energy gets wasted in the form of heat. Mm -hmm. The it, they, when they make the power, they also can't store the power. It's another important concept. It's not like they it's not like they're making T-shirts, and they said, well, you know. Um, we, we made a hundred t-shirts today. We only sold 75 t-shirts today. That's okay. We can just take these extra 25 t-shirts and we can sell them tomorrow yeah. or we can add them onto tomorrow's inventory. It doesn't work like that with electricity. You basically have to use it or lose it. There's some storage, but it's not much. Yeah. And the, the ROI on storage is non-existent, meaning That's that it's not, it's not worth it to build the capacity to store the electricity because you'll never make your money back on it. Exactly. And so they have this extra power. So ideally, uh, you would have an entity. If you could design a perfect entity, if you're a power company, you would say, okay, here's what I want from this entity. I would like an entity that can take my unused power that's, that, I, that, that we're losing in heat and getting exactly $0 for. And maybe there's a cost to, to cooling it. I don't even know. And I'd like to turn that power into money. That would be great if we could have something like that. And here's the other, here's the kicker. I don't just want it to convert 
the excess power into money. I want to to be able to shut it down whenever I want in order to provide capacity to my customers. So meaning I don't want a customer that has to manufacture like potato chips <laughs> because they have to run their potato chip plant. Yeah. And and even if you say, well, I want to run computers, well, Google doesn't want you shutting down their servers if you lose, if you need, if if you have a power shortage, right? Sure. So it's like the perfect computer or perfect setup for a, a power company where they can turn that wasted energy into money and they can have these machines that help stabilize their network. And so when you have the situation that happened in Texas, they shut down the miners. Yep. And there was the 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 network that would have had a lack of energy now had the energy it needed because those miners were there to help uh, build a, a higher average level output. Right. And you've got this kind of symbiotic relationship because what happens is the power company has just created a new revenue stream by bringing these miners on board and selling them extra energy. But the miners have to be profitable and they know at what price they're not profitable. So really all the energy companies, not even as, you know, and they do have contracts and that, that state, you know, when and how they can shut, they can tell them to power down, but it's really just a supply and demand function, which is that, okay, you can keep buying this energy, but it's going to cost you three times what you're paying for it now, because we got somebody over here who needs it and they're willing to pay at least that. And so there's no reason a miner would never say, okay, I'll pay the higher price because, you know, they're, they're not, it's not like they're, you know, wildly profitable. They have, they have to watch the cost of their power in order to remain profitable. So as the price of that energy goes up, it's in their interest to power down. It's not all, it doesn't only help the power company. It helps the miners continue to run a profitable operation. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be clear because I think we're talking about two, I think you described the situation with having like an external miner buy your energy, which is what we have in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we have this, this story here, uh, which I was more, I was thinking through that one more, which is that the energy providers themselves would host the miners. Well, yeah, and I think that's a function of time, meaning that exactly. right now you've got you've got these large mining companies that are serving that function. I think over time, especially as you know, if power companies have these revenue streams that allow them to invest, then I could see that would be a logical next step is like, you know, this is like an outsourcing decision almost, you know, mm-hmm. um, or not almost, it is an outsourcing decision. Well, exactly. I can pay, I can pay, you know, marathon or riot blockchain to, um, to take away my excess power. Um, or I can take the money that, you know, I'm making by selling it to them and now buy my own mining equipment and do it myself and cut them out. And so I think you, I think you'll see some of that happen over time. I think you'll see both, but, but, uh, this, uh, the, this, uh, data center that's going to be connected to the, it's a 2.5 gigawatt nuclear power station. Mm-hmm. It's a 48 megawatt, 300,000 square foot data center. So that's a lot of Bitcoin miners in 300,000 yeah. square feet. Well, I, I think if I read, it's not all Bitcoin mining that's going to be going on there. Um, I think it. I think that it will be a big, a big chunk of it. But, um, but it is a data center that's going to actually host other, okay. um, other computing services. 
That would make sense. That would yeah. make sense. Yeah. Right. Another good idea. I'm surprised we don't see more of that. You know, surprised we don't see more uh, uh, mining facilities located next to power suppliers. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess because for some of that they couldn't, they can't turn it off. Right. You if you're if you're going to host regular data center, you can't turn off the machines. Right. Right. The cl- yeah. If you're uh, if you're on there hosting your you know your own cloud servers or whatever, you're you're not doing the same thing as a Bitcoin miner in that same space. But it, but I, I think it's just it's just a big warehouse full of computers. So. But progress, you know, it's yeah. the first, you know, and it's, and, it, and it's something we had discussed before, and it's something that this is just the the first one to do it. Then there'll be two, then there'll be four, because this is so obvious. Even someone like like me that knows nothing about this business can see how obvious the solution is. Yep. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. Um, so grayscale. Grayscale has been an interesting one. Um, you know, they were denied their application to convert to a spot ETF, um, and they turned around and sued the SEC. Um, and so now there's going to be a court date. I believe uh, March 7th is going to be the date where they actually um, they actually have oral arguments in court um, regarding this matter. But, um, you know, this is an interesting one, I think, because Grayscale is one of those, it's, you know, it was like the first fund that gave retail investors exposure to Bitcoin without actually owning Bitcoin. Mm. Um, but it's traded at a fairly significant discount to Bitcoin, um, which I think that discount keeps getting deeper and deeper. I think last I saw is that like a 40% discount. Um, I think it's recovered a little bit from there. So yeah, it probably has recovered 30%. some with, with the run up, but, but whatever, it's still significantly, you know, the, the value of the fund is less than the value of the underlying Bitcoin, um, which, um, part of that is because there, it's difficult, kind of difficult to get out of it. There's no real mechanism for, for the fund, for the trust actually to be able to, um, to liquidate any Bitcoin for people to, you know, to get out. So mm-hmm. the easiest way to do that would be to convert to a, to a spot ETF, and that was denied. So um, I think there's 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 a lot of uh, overall Bitcoin market cap kind of locked up in this problem. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I'm a bit cynical. I just think that the idea that you can't have a Bitcoin spot ETF um, has been the desire of Wall Street to not have it there. Yeah, because it makes it more difficult to keep the price suppressed. Right. And that's obvious. I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not a, I'm not a, I'm not like a big anti Wall Street guy. I'm just saying that if Wall Street wanted a spot ETF for Bitcoin, they would have it. They, they would simply make sure that the politicians uh, were supported in the right way. And it just wouldn't even be a question. So this is something Wall Street doesn't want, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I would say that I, there are probably some on Wall Street that do, but in general, the the uh, the Wall Street world doesn't want it. Yeah, they just don't. And so, and the SEC. This is where I'm a bit cynical. The SEC is uh, arguably controlled by Wall Street. Like they there there are ties with them together. They're not they're not in Wall Street and the SEC are not in an adversarial position. There are times where certain companies don't do what's right. The SEC will go after them, but 
you know, the, the people that run the SEC are politicians. And so yeah. that's, it's, it's a world of, um, they're politicians, many of whom came from wall street. So, yeah. right. Right. <laughs> and so do I really expect like, is it, you know, what are the odds of this judicial decision being based on facts, reason, logic, and the law? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. If if it, if it was, I'd be very optimistic. Yeah, but um, I'm not particularly optimistic because, you know, I've uh, I've just seen this 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 movie before. Yeah. So, um, we'll see. I think I, I will say this: that you never know, never know what's going to happen. Um. I will be surprised, and I'll be pleasantly surprised if this goes through. I think it uh, it would be a monster catalyst for Bitcoin. Yeah. Monster. I think yeah. it's I and and then okay. Here's another. If we're gonna get into just sort of these just theories or ideas, what if? Here's a weird what if. What if? People on Wall Street already know what's happening. What if people on Wall Street want this to happen? And like I said, I'm going to say again, this is just a what if. I'm just having a hypothetical discussion. Sometimes you never know where it goes. But what if the 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 there's already the the let's just say the fix is in. Let's just say the whole system is is <laughs> is as. Uh, as corrupt as many people think it is, and that the people on Wall Street have said, they've told the SEC, like, listen, we had to do what we had to do to Bitcoin. There were some things that needed to be done. We had to bring the price back. We loaded up. We started. We knew that this thing was there. We're ready for you to, um, to unleash it now. And you can be the kind of, like, you can keep your adversarial position here. Right, like no, we're the SEC. We did our thing, and uh, and a judge is going to rule that it's legal. And and the people on Wall Street now, the institutional investors have done their sort of, they they maybe they've moved it from sixteen five to twenty three during mm -hmm. this period, right? Trying to trying to acquire, knowing that this is coming. Maybe I don't know. Weirder things have happened. Sure. Right. So, yeah. and so maybe they have this case and they're like, okay, you know, after this case, we know Bitcoin's going to go on a crazy run. It's wishful thinking, maybe, but um, it is in the, uh, it does have a, above a 0% chance of happening. Yeah. It's non zero for sure. Um, all right. This one, I like this one. Uh, speaking of Wall Street. So, if anybody was paying attention to, um, to what was going on in, in Davos last week. It was uh, <laughs> it was the usual uh, par for the course, at least, uh, you know. Um, it was comical. Yeah. It, I, 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 we can't play a clip on here. The clip was pretty funny. I mean, it was like they he did everything he possibly could to not talk about Bitcoin. So... Right. He he didn't like that they asked him about Bitcoin, and so he called it a hyped-up fraud. He called it, um, he, you know, he – but actually, that – you know, people calling it a Ponzi scheme or a fraud or a fad or a pet rock, all of that kind of stuff, like, okay, I can – 
I, uh, that okay. just that has zero impact on me. The, the The second part of the sentence is really what what I think is is worth talking about, which is that Jamie Dimon, the CEO of one of the largest banks in the world, came out and said that he doesn't trust Bitcoin's monetary policy, and that he expects that at some point Satoshi will just change the twenty one million to some other number that's bigger than twenty one million, mm-hmm. and if you understand Bitcoin, even on a fairly superficial level, um, you realize that that's just, it's just utter nonsense. There's. It's, it's, it's not, it's not intended for an audience that knows anything. Right. So, because to suggest that you can just arbitrarily change the, the cap or that, if Satoshi were to, you know, reappear that that's what they would do. Um, you know, the, their first order of business after being gone since disappearing, um, you know, over a decade ago, their first act would be to devalue the thing that they created. So first of all, let's start there. Second of all, math. <laughs> I mean, that's really, if you, it, it, the, the code is open source. Um, there is an equation. You can make it in an Excel spreadsheet in about a minute. If you know how to use Excel, that will show you what 21 million coins looks like. And the fact that because of math, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. It's a, and, and in order for that to change, pretty much everyone that's using Bitcoin today and that owns Bitcoin today would have to agree to that in order for it to, to change. And so, and I, I'm probably saying a lot of things that a lot of people listening know if they're already into Bitcoin. It's not, you know, the 21 million cap is is not really uh, in question. But what I find really interesting is that I can't believe for a second that Jamie Dimon doesn't know that. There, there are only two possibilities, right? It's binary. Either Jamie Dimon understands... I, I, well, at, at its at its highest level, it's it's pretty much binary. Either Jamie Dimon understands Bitcoin, or he doesn't. And I'm not going to say when I say either Jamie Dimon understands Bitcoin, I'm not going to say that he's put a thousand hours of study into it and he's he's thought it through and he's kind of pondered on it and you know listened to podcasts. I don't mean that. I mean that Jamie Dimon runs one of the largest banks in the entire world. Is J.P. Morgan second, third? I mean, they're right there. They're right there. It's basically at that point, it doesn't matter. It's basically bigger than most people can comprehend. Okay, he is. It may say Jamie. It may say J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, but Jamie Dimon is arguably one of the twenty most powerful people in the world. Would you agree? I mean, he's in a club at the top fifty. It doesn't really matter. I mean, he's he's so. I'll I'll put this into perspective. Okay. JP Morgan, when you look at the largest banks in the world by total assets, <laughs> um, JP Morgan is number five. Okay. Um, one through four are all Chinese banks. Okay. So it's the largest American bank. Okay. Largest American bank and the largest bank in the world outside of China. Largest bank in the world outside of China. Okay. So, which by the way, there's not like, you know, 10,000 banks in China like we have here. Right. There's a right. handful. So, so 
Jamie Dimon, if he does not understand Bitcoin, and we, we talked about some things earlier about what is Bitcoin. Well, it's the best, most powerful, most reliable monetary network in the world. That is a thing. There are hundreds of thousands of computers that are running this network in a decentralized way. It's, it's, it's something really extraordinary in the world of technology, especially since it has no employees and doesn't have a chief technology officer or anything like that. It's really quite insane, Yeah. right? How reliable and robust this network is. And no one's ever hacked it. JP Morgan's been hacked all the time. JP Morgan has been hacked. I mean, they don't talk about it, but JP Morgan, sure. if you wanted to hack it, you could hack it. I could. You could. <laughs> but, but, but there are people that do it. Um, yeah. um, I have a cousin. That's what they get hired to do. They get hired to hack into banks by the banks. The banks say, find the vulnerabilities. Yep. And they said, There's, there is no 100%. There's no 100%. So no bank is, 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 um, cannot be penetrated. But Bitcoin is looking pretty close to that right now. We'll see. But um, so for so either Jamie Dimon understands in the world of money that Bitcoin is the best monetary network in the world for a number of reasons. And we can get into all those plus the supply and demand. I mean, either he's this guy that understands that and he should understand gold. So if he understands gold, he should understand Bitcoin. Sure. Right. Or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, then what is he doing running J.P. Morgan? <laughs> like that's that's because even if he didn't there are people at jp morgan i guarantee you i guarantee you there are people at jp morgan that really really understand bitcoin for all i know yeah. they, they might hire people to just study bitcoin all day your job is to listen to you know these you know eight <laughs> to ten hours in a work day and you're gonna listen to 10 hours of podcasts each day well uh you know we and write we reports have... on it we have a friend who's uh, taken some Bitcoin development courses who, you know, the first time he took the, the course, it was all coders. And the last time he took the course, it was a lot of JP Morgan Chase employees. You know? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, um, <laughs> so, so there, there, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't JP Morgan once sent a, a letter out to like their top people saying that they think Bitcoin could go to 600,000 a coin? Was, was that, that JP, JP uh, or Goldman Sachs? Maybe Goldman. Goldman Sachs. Okay. But yeah. uh, okay. So Jamie Dimon didn't get that memo. <laughs> right. So, and you know, and, and we did hear about that, that they were having coders. So they're not just having people. And that was a pretty intense coding class. Like that yeah. was not Bitcoin coding 101. That was, no, that was yeah, yeah. very, very advanced. So, um, so uh, of course they understand. Of course they understand. Of course he understands it. I, I'm, I refuse to believe that Jamie Dimon doesn't have a good grasp on it. And I, and I kind of have proof of that too. So I watched that and he said, um, he said, uh, would you put that slide up again? It's a hyped up fraud, right? Yeah. He said it was a hyped up fraud, but you know what he didn't say after that? He didn't give a reason why. He didn't say it's a hyped up fraud because whatever his because was. Mm -hmm. He was like, ah, oh, it's a hyped up fraud. Well, if that, you know, if you were taking a test, what kind of grade would you get for that answer? <laughs> right. That's a, that's the, that's, yeah. you're not getting any points for that answer. I mean, I, you know, there are people that, uh, uh, that like to say that a Ringo star is not a 
great drummer <laughs> for the Beatles, right? The Beatles are amazing. You know, these three amazing guys, uh, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and then this, and Ringo. And there was kind of this running joke for, yeah. you know, Ringo and Ringo. But um, anyone that knows anything about music and drums knows that Ringo Starr is an amazing drummer, like a genius, super yeah. genius, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, um, by the way, if anyone doesn't believe it, there's a really interesting video on YouTube where they try and like challenge drummers to play that song act naturally. Mm -hmm. And, and they just asked the people just to play that song, but he used to play a song and sing it. And it's just got this really, um, uh, unusual time sequence with like the swing to it. And people just can't play that song for two minutes the right way. So the, but the point is that a lot of people are like, oh, Ringo is a terrible drummer. Well, if you don't explain it and you don't give a reason why, then that's just like anyone can say anything. Like, oh, Tom Brady, he's not that good, <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyone can just throw that out. And that's just kind of what he said. When you don't back it up with anything. So th these, are, these are reporters are asking you a question. And you would think that if someone asked you something about Bitcoin, that you would have a quick response of why Bitcoin is not good. And what this proves to me is that they don't have, and he doesn't have a good response for why Bitcoin is not good. He can't say you can't trust it. Right. Can't say it's not reliable. Can't say it's a, a scam, right? He, he, he didn't have anything to say. So he's like, oh, it's just, it's just a hyped up fraud. And mm -hmm. then nothing after that. So, and I think that was telling. And also the part about they can also change the code. You, you mean to tell me that Jamie Dimon, CEO for many years of JP Morgan, with, you know, doesn't know that the code for Bitcoin is open source, really? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, a lot of people in that audience are not going to really digest it. And once again, it's just like, you know, he, he wants to try and convince the general public that Bitcoin is garbage. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably Clearly. right. Um, all right. Well, let's go to this last one. This is um, less of a story. It was just kind of a, a thing that, that happened that was kind of going around Twitter uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but I thought this was a good opportunity to talk a little bit about Bitcoin butlers and, and how we view kind of best practices as it relates to custody. Um, so, here's what happened as I understand it. And again, this is just kind of from reading what I read on Twitter from the, the, the guy who, who says he lost the coins. I've listened to a couple podcasts where they mentioned it. And so, you know, this is not, I, I'm just kind of, this is my disclaimer that this is somewhat alleged, somewhat hypothetical, but kind of makes sense as to what could have happened. Um, so you've had, there's this uh, developer um, Luke Dash Jr., who is a fairly well-known, highly respected Bitcoin core developer, um, who came out and said that he had over about 200 Bitcoins that were stolen in a hack. And it was because his PGP key was compromised. Now, PGP is a way to encrypt the private key of a Bitcoin wallet and think of it, it you know, if you're at all technical or, or, or you care, um, PGP was, you know, before you had um, seed phrases, 
and deterministic wallets, you basically had a private key and that private key could generate public keys. Um, and you wanted to keep that key secure. Um, today, the way you would back up that key would be to write down a seed phrase and have that kept somewhere safe as a backup. Well, when this wallet was set up, that wasn't a possibility. It was just that you had a private key and then he used a, an encryption protocol, which is a, a well-known protocol called PGP that to take that private key and make it to where if somebody were to see that private key, the data would be useless to them. They wouldn't be able to do anything with it. And what happened apparently was that it seems like maybe two different servers were hacked. So he, one server was hacked that had the encrypted data and then something else was hacked that had the decryption key to turn that encrypted data into a private key. And then when the hacker got that private key, they swept the coins out of that wallet. Um, I also read some tweets that they were immediately put into some coin join transactions. Um, so they were made. So what they did see um, very quickly was very difficult to see because of the, the coin joining. Um, so look, this is a, another sad story of somebody losing their Bitcoin one way or another. Um, we know that, that it happens for different reasons. Um, but the kind of the point that I wanted to make here about this is that number one, um, don't use this. I don't view this story as a reason to consider keeping your coin on an exchange as a better form of storage. You know, I wouldn't look at it and say, Hey, this is a, a Bitcoin developer. This guy knows what he's doing. He's well-respected. He's smart. And he, and he held his own keys and got, and you know got his coin stolen um i think that that i think that that's kind of a false way to look at it because first of all he was using i would argue that he was using old technology and 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 on top of that he he had to at some point violate uh have violated you know what i would consider some basic standards for holding your own keys which is first of all if you've got the decryption key stored on a computer that is in any way connected to the internet, then you've just, you know, whether it's a C phrase or a decryption key, it's the same type of information. And so, you know, at some point he allowed that to get compromised um, by not properly storing it. So that's one thing. But the other point is that this stuff can be complicated and you have to have some guidance, um, unless you're an expert in this, or unless you're a technology, you know, a technologist that can, that can do all of this, um, coming up with a way to store your Bitcoin by holding your own keys is something that, you know, you should take seriously. And it's something that you should do that needs to be updated. Like, it, you know, if, if he had switched from this PGP encryption to, um, you know, a seed phrase that was backed up and held in a safe instead of on a computer, maybe he wouldn't be in this situation. Or if he had moved it into a multi-sig setup where just one of those keys didn't do anything for the attacker um, and they didn't know how to get to, you know, one of the other, you know, any of the other keys required, then he might've prevented that. So the point here and, and, you know, tying it into what we do is that we want to help people come up with a, a self-custody plan that, you know, 
not only meets the requirements of, of good self-custody, but is also maintained over time so that as things change and as there, as we get better solutions on how to hold our Bitcoin, um, that we're constantly, you know, embracing those new ways of doing things and that we're able to tell, you know, our customers and the public, Hey, here's what we think are the best practices on how to do it. Currently we think that a multi-sig wallet is the best practice for storing your Bitcoin. Um, it takes some discipline. It takes some setup. It takes some knowledge to do it. Um, and that's why we're here to help, help people do that. But, you know, this is a good example of a highly proficient technologist who, you know, didn't embrace best practices. Um, maybe there were best practices at the time he was doing them, but, you know, fast forward 10 years later, or, you know, I think, I think the uh, seed phrases came about around maybe like seven, five, seven years ago, somewhere around that 2015, 2017, somewhere in there. Um, you know, so it hadn't been updated since then. So, you know, you got to keep on top of it and make sure that as better solutions come along, um, you're leveraging those to, to keep your, to keep your assets safe. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it shouldn't have happened. It didn't need to happen. Um, what you said is accurate that it was, it, it, it was old technology and in, in one way you look at it, but it's also not a best practice regardless if the discussion of the technology was just not a best practice. And with the, with the multi-sig solutions, just to name two, uh, which is Casa and Unchained, uh, with those being available in the marketplace, um, and with the um, the really low fees of some of their their entry level packages, I think that the the cheapest multi sig setup for Casa is ten dollars a month, mm -hmm. and the uh, I think Unchained. It's they have like an initial setup fee and then they don't have yearly. Well, it depends fees. what you're doing. Uh, Unchained, Unchained is if you're just holding your coins in a multi-sig vault, that's free. Um, right. It just costs you the the cost of the the hardware devices. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to use their IRA product, um, then sure. there is a fee to do that. Sure. Um, which um, that IRA product is interesting as well. Um, if you have if you have Bitcoin or you want to hold Bitcoin in your IRA, that's a good way to do it. But, um, but yeah, both of those solutions, a, you know, a Casa gold account for $120 a year or an unchained vault that's essentially free um, is a, uh, is a really user-friendly solution and a great way to, to, you know, ward off a high percentage of, of, the situations that that would cause you to lose your coins mm -hmm. and do we know when the guy like how often was he checking with his pgp key like when was the last time he checked maybe he hadn't checked in five years seven years uh that i don't know right so it's no. like hey i i went back to it seven years later and it's gone well I, you would think that i mean uh, uh, stranger things have happened yeah i mean you know it was 200 bitcoin Just so saying, you, know. you know um yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know how often he was checking it. I know um, so, uh, a lot of really smart people can be pretty irresponsible, and I don't mean. I, I mean, like they they're they don't always have the best common sense, right? And he just wasn't thinking through something. So I could see like a 
like I don't know, have this like thing in my head of like a engineer at Tesla who it's like super hot out and he's wearing like a parka comes in or like has no no concept of like what summer and what the weather is just yeah. you know but but he can design a rocket that lands itself right yeah. like it's, something has to give so i just don't know if this guy is just like you know maybe super brilliant developer but he just you know when it comes to like he's always like locking his keys in his car you know you don't know who he is right but yeah. but, but what we do know is that we can, if we have an opportunity here to learn what not to do, it's another good example. Yeah, and and I would I would direct people towards Casa and Unchained Solutions. Yeah, as well I, as looking at other. Well, and, and the other thing that's also critical, in my opinion, is you also have to run your own node, and so um, that's another piece of it. Is that you know, running your own node allows you to see what's sitting in all of your addresses um, without having to rely on anyone else's server to do it. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. The, the watch only wallets are pretty amazing. Well, good. Um, what else you got? That was long. Yeah. That's, that's, I think it's enough. I agree. But I do think it was uh, – it's really been the first time in, in a while that I've really thought about it. I thought that uh, – I thought we had a very interesting discussion. I enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, we'll, we need to continue continue on. Um, it's good to take a break, you know, come back and have a lot to talk about. Double album. <laughs> right. Um, box set coming up. Um, so, all right. Well, um, I'll let everybody know uh, – where they can find us. Um, you can come to our website, btcbutlers.com. Uh, our Twitter handle at btcbutlers. DMs are open. You can email us at info at btcbutlers.com. Um, you can leave comments on YouTube. Like Michael said in the beginning, if you enjoyed it, please like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. And if we can help you with any of the best practices for Bitcoin owners, whether that's buying Bitcoin, storing your Bitcoin, setting up an, inherit an inheritance plan for your Bitcoin, running your own node, and keeping everything up to date, um, we're here and happy to, uh, to help you do any or all of those, those things. Um, you can check out our best practices guide, uh, which I think is probably, probably about due for, for an update. So we'll, we're going to work on that and get that out soon. And uh, you can also check out our sovereign inheritance planning guide that gives you a uh, roadmap on how to secure your uh, your digital assets and non-digital assets uh, so that your your heirs can get them when the time comes. So uh, with that, I will sign off and uh, thanks. Thank you, Matt. Bye.